All right, well, I want to start this morning by looking at uh, one of my favorite Proverbs. I guess I have a lot of favorite Proverbs. I want to start by looking at a proverb, I suppose. Proverbs 15.23. And it says that a man has joy in an apt answer or a, a fitting reply, other translations will say. And how delightful is a timely word. I'm sure that many of us have experienced this, right? Where we are encouraged by God sending uh, an encouraging word through one of his people at just the right time in just the right way. Um, it's, it's great to see that uh, somebody is, uh, is coming to you and they are fulfilling God's word for you. And uh, it would be very fitting for me to say, Happy New Year to you guys this morning, right? That's, that's a timely word. Probably less fitting for me to say, Happy Birthday, Rex. Uh, happy Birthday, Char. Uh, that's not, not quite as timely, right? Uh, but a timely word is very fitting. And just as we should weigh criticisms differently when they come from uh, different people, depending upon the source, we should also weigh encouragements differently, depending on the source. We should think about these things in, in the same way. Uh, for example, I don't really care how a stranger thinks I, I look. If a stranger says, well, you're kind of goofy, looking. You're kind of funky looking. I, I know that already. I'm more concerned with how my wife thinks I look, right? Uh, in the same vein, I am less concerned with what some uh, unbelieving critic thinks about my, my theology, about my view of God. But I'm more concerned with how you guys think uh, I'm, I'm viewing God. If I am straying from the scripture and you guys bring that to my attention, that's going to carry a lot more weight than uh, if some critic, some unbelieving critic were to come and say the same thing. Uh, in the, the same way, if somebody has uh, an encouragement for you, somebody who has uh, experienced a loss, for example, they are more likely to, to have impactful words for you when you're going through a similar situation than just some stranger who offers you their, their condolences. So a timely word is, is great. And a word that comes from somebody that you admire, that has a uh, position in, in your life, that also plays uh, a great deal into how you're going to receive that word of encouragement or that word of, of warning, perhaps. And here this morning, we're going to be looking at Paul's words. We've looked for uh, a couple of weeks. We took a week off for Christmas, but in the first several verses of Second Corinthians 1, we see some great words of comfort from Paul, just really gems of, of comfort that we can find in these words. And when we realize what it is that, that Paul was going through just before these words of comfort were shared, I think it makes these words even more impactful to realize that, that Paul, the, the apostle Paul, we should probably value his opinion as Christians, right? And he, right before offering these words of comfort, he was going through a, a great time of affliction, a great time of struggle in his life. And so we're going to look this morning at how these words of encouragement, these encouraging words of comfort are written to the Corinthians on the heels of his own uh, life-threatening experience. And so I want to start by reading uh, a greater section than what we're going to be covering this morning. I'm going to start in verse 3 and read down through verse 11. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 11. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, 
so that we will be able to comfort those who are in, in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you are sharers of our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death, and will deliver us. He on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us. You also joining in helping us through your prayers, so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many." So again, Paul is offering these great words of comfort on the hills of going through this, this affliction, this affliction that he's describing in verses 8 through 11. And I want to jump in and look at what this affliction is and how this affliction has impacted Paul and, and caused him to reach out to this church at Corinth, the church of God that is at Corinth. So in verse 8, we see that Paul says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia. So Paul, having this great bond, this great unity with this church, calling them brethren, they are united by the gospel in the blood of Christ together to each other. And Paul is reaching out to them to, to comfort them, to offer to share not only in their comforts, but to offer that they share with him in his affliction. Uh, back in verse 4, it says that uh, he who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. So God comforted Paul so that Paul could then turn, in turn, comfort the, the Corinthians. And then here in verse 7, it says, knowing that as you are sharers of our suffering, so also you are sharers of our comfort. And so Paul, uh, again, being united with them, he wants them to to partake with him in his affliction. He mentions this great affliction in verse 8 that he has come under in Asia. And uh, we need to first consider what is this affliction? Taking a, a look at the source of this affliction, I'm going to tell you right now that there's really not a whole lot that we have on the, the source. What is causing Paul's great affliction in Asia? We don't have a whole lot of information. We can't say with with absolute certainty what it is that was causing Paul this great affliction. But we can kind of boil it down to two main possibilities. Either he was facing some sort of persecution in Asia, and others have suggested that maybe he had some kind of internal health issues that were afflicting him that he came across in Asia. We definitely know that, that Paul knew what it was to be persecuted, to endure persecution, to face persecution. Uh, back in 1 Corinthians 15, we see that when he was in Ephesus, which is the, the main city in Asia, that he says that, um, that he was fighting as if with wild beasts at Ephesus. That was how he described it, that he was fighting with wild beasts at Ephesus. That sounds 
quite intense. Uh, you can go back to Acts 19. You could read about the, the riots that Paul faced at Ephesus and just how brutal those riots were and how he had to be kind of smuggled out of the city to avoid further persecution. Paul knew what it was to be persecuted. Uh, however, uh, some of the, um, the reasons that I don't think that these specific events are connected with Paul's affliction here in uh, 2 Corinthians, a lot of people will connect these events because, again, Ephesus was in Asia. However, I think it's a little bit odd that Paul would freely say, well, those events took place in Ephesus, and here he would refer to it as Asia. In fact, most people see these afflictions as taking place after the writing of 1 Corinthians when these events were said to have taken place. And Paul was writing about them in 1 Corinthians, and this affliction that Paul's talking about is believed to have taken place after 1 Corinthians, and some even say after uh, Paul's severe letter or the, the painful visit that he made to, to 2 Corinthians. It seems like this is a, a rather recent affliction that Paul was undergoing that he's communicating to his brothers at Corinth. Um, again, the, the other possibility is that he was dealing with some kind of health issues. A lot of people will say, well, this affliction that Paul was going through was internal, his health issues. I want to share this quote with you from Murray Harris, who takes this position. He says, it can scarcely be denied that the description of Paul's affliction in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 11 aptly portrays, or at least is consonant with a prostrating attack of a recurring malady. A painful, death-threatening illness would certainly seem to the sufferer to be an intolerable burden that expelled all hope of survival. And so, again, we, we don't know for sure. Um, it's possible that it was a, an internal issue, some kind of health issue. Uh, one thing that kind of leads me to think maybe this isn't the case is Paul's use of the, the plural here in these verses. He's talking about us and, and we, these afflictions that we were going under in verse 8. And while, again, it's impossible to know for sure, what we can know for sure about this affliction, about this trouble that Paul was going through in Asia, are the, the effects of this affliction, the results of this affliction. We see in, in verse 8 that having gone through this affliction, which came to us in Asia, he says that we were burdened excessively. That's a, a strong thing for Paul to say. That's a, a strong word for Paul to use, that he was burdened, not just burdened, but he was burdened excessively. Uh, other ways that that word's translated are, are to be weighed down, to be absolutely overcome. That's what Paul's saying. I was, I was overcome with excessive burden. Uh, this same word is translated as heavy in Matthew 26, 43, when Jesus said, when it's said that Jesus came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. Their eyes were, were burdened. That's what Paul's saying. I, I, I feel heavy. I feel burdened. Uh, later on in chapter 4, Paul's going to use the same word to compare uh, our earthly bodies versus our heavenly bodies. In, in chapter 5, rather, chapter 5, verse 4, he says that we groan and we are burdened being clothed in this earthly tent. So just being on this earth and going through the struggles of this earth and, and desiring to be in heaven, Paul says that that is a, a burden, that is heavy, that is uh, an excessive weight on, on Paul. We see the, the real anguish of Paul. Whatever this affliction was, it had a, a lasting effect on Paul. So that it, it burdened him, it weighed him down heavily. And throughout this letter, 2 Corinthians, as we've mentioned before, this is a, a real letter. It's 
raw, it's fresh. And, and Paul gets real in this letter about his burdens, about his struggles. And he speaks of some disparaging times, uh, particularly in chapter 6 and 11. In chapter 6, it says that they commended themselves as servants to God in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distress, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger. Paul knew what it was to be distressed. He knew what it was to be burdened and, and weighed down. And again, chapter 11, a very popular passage, uh, Paul speaks of his imprisonments, of his beatings, of being often in danger of death. Five times he received from the Jews 39 lashes. Uh, three times he was beaten with rods. He was stoned. He was shipwrecked. And he goes on to talk about uh, just endless, seemingly endless dangers that he encountered. Again, Paul knew what it was to be pressed down, to be burdened, to be heavy with distress. And yet this affliction in Asia that's described in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, it seems uh, that it was indeed a, a low point, perhaps, in Paul's life. Even amongst all these other trials of being shipwrecked, imprisoned, beaten, uh, Paul says here he was burdened excessively. It was a, a difficult time in, in Paul's life. And he goes on to use a, another strong word. He says, again in verse 8, not only that they were burdened excessively beyond their strength, but he says, so that we despaired even of life. That was the low that Paul was in. He was despairing of his life. Uh, that word means that there is no way out, no exit. Paul says, I'm, I'm, I don't see a way out. I don't see any escape. He was despairing, absolutely. And he uses this word again in chapter 4, verse 8, where he says that we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing. That's the same word. He says, yeah, we're, we're perplexed, but we're not despairing. And he seems pretty confident there in, in chapter 4 when he's talking about not being despairing. But here in, in 1.8, as opposed to 4.8, uh, he is just transparently honest. And he is saying that they despaired even of their own life. He was at a, a bottom, at rock bottom. Paul was ready to, to throw in the towel. He was wanting to give up, having lost his desire to live, despairing of his own life. Again, in, in 9, in the beginning of 9, he says, indeed, not only were we despairing even of our own life, but indeed we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust ourselves. So Paul had this in his mind. He thought that his death was, was fixed. He thought that his death was settled. He thought that it was, was finished and decided. Even within himself, he had lost any hope of life. He thought that it was over for him. But then notice this important phrase in, in verse 9. He says, even we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that. That's an important phrase we need to, to hold on to. He had the sentence of death in him for a purpose. This so that that we see speaks of divine purpose, not just within Paul's affliction that led all this on, not just within his uh, heart that was, was burdened down and his despairing of life. All this had a, a divine purpose to it. Uh, he says that I was afflicted, I was uh, pushed down, I had this sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves. That was the, the outcome of Paul's affliction. That was the, the end result of Paul's affliction, that he got to this place of uh, utter selflessness. He got to this place of humility where he realized he couldn't do it. 
Remember back up in verse 8, he said that it was beyond our strength to realize there's nothing I can do about this affliction. There's nothing I can do about this trouble and this weight that's burdening me down. Here in uh, verse 9, he says that we were not trusting in ourselves. Uh, Paul had moved from a place of despair to a place of dependence. He wasn't uh, just despairing, but this despair brought him to a, a dependence upon God. And in, in doing that, it brought him from this place of affliction to this place of comfort, to realize that he had no, no say in it, to realize that he was at the end of himself. Uh, this, this despair, this burden, brought him to that place of humility, which is a, a great place to be, where we are not trusting in ourselves, but we're looking and, and trusting in the, the Almighty One, and the only one who can do anything about it. And he found this comfort of affliction um, by looking to the God of all comfort. As he describes God back up in verse 3, he says that he is the Father of mercies. He is the God of all comfort. And now he says here in, in verse 9 that this affliction caused him not to trust in himself, but in God who raises the dead. Not just in any God, not just in some higher power. No, God. Paul is very specific about the God that this affliction is, is bringing him to trust in. He is trusting in the God who is the creator of heaven and earth. He's trusting in the God who is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who, who led Israel up out of Egypt. He's trusting in the, the God who is Yahweh himself, the one who is without beginning or end, from everlasting to everlasting. He is trusting in the one who alone stands in judgment over our sins who has power over life and death, and as he explains here, who demonstrates that power by raising people from the dead. He says that his trust is now in God who raises the dead. And then he goes on in, in verse 10, we see the result of this trust. It says, this God who raises people from the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death. So not only does does Paul looked to this God who raises the dead, but he sees this deliverance from this God, that he delivered them from this great peril of death. And you would think, okay, well, Paul, he's at this, this utter low point in his life, and he's gone through all this, this garbage. He's having this hard time. He thinks that there's no end, and, and God steps in and rescues him. That's got to be a, an epic story, right? That's an instant Hollywood blockbuster. But he not only skips over the, the details of the affliction, but also of the rescue. We don't really see much about the affliction. We don't know, again, if it was a, a health issue or if he was facing some kind of outward persecution. And we also don't know how he was rescued out of this affliction. But instead, Paul focuses on the one who rescued him out of this affliction. Paul focuses on this God who raises people from the dead. And we see in this that that Paul has a hope, a hope that is not just a, an empty hope. It's not just a, a blind faith, but it's a hope and a comfort that are anchored in uh, both a proven past and a, a promised future. Again, that, that Paul is putting his hope in the God who raises people from the dead. And yes, we see that Paul finds comfort in the one who not only raises the dead, but had himself risen from the dead. And this is evidence of Paul putting hope in what God has already done and how God has already proven himself to be faithful. But Paul seems here to be even indicating that he himself has been raised from the dead. That's the kind of language that he's using here. Back in verse 9, 
he said that uh, we were, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. Again, Paul thought it was all over. He thought that it was done. He had considered himself to be dead, ran off his life as being done and over. And then here in verse 10, he now says that this God who raises the dead has delivered us from this great peril of death. So it's as if Paul himself has been raised from the dead. That is how he's speaking, that in a sense, he has been brought back from death into life. Not just in a a spiritual sense, like we all experience being uh, taken and and transferred from death into life, being transferred from a, a kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his marvelous son, though that is true. But here, Paul is speaking about this experience, about whatever affliction he was encountering in Asia, and God stepping in and, and rescuing him from this affliction so that he is now seemingly being brought back to life. He has experienced resurrection uh, from this, what he considered death of, um, of his life. He thought that it was all over and he had written it off and now he has experienced this salvation, this deliverance from the God who raises people from the dead. However, Paul doesn't just stop there and, and point to the past and what God has done in the past in, in raising people from the dead, even himself in this affliction that he's experiencing in Asia. But he is, uh, this resurrection experience has caused Paul to ponder his eternal resurrection, looking forward to even the future. And we see in, in verse 10 again, that this God who has rescued us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us, future tense, he on whom we have set our hope in the past, and he will yet deliver us in the future. Now, a lot of people will look at this verse and they'll say, well, God was just going to protect Paul no matter what, and God will protect all of his people no matter what from these real physical afflictions, and uh, we, we shouldn't expect anything bad to happen. Well, that's not at all what, what Paul was saying. Uh, let me share with you a, another verse in 2 Timothy four eighteen. That verse starts off by saying that the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. And then he, he continues on as you see it says, and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. So Paul has heaven in mind. This is the, the last chapter that Paul ever writ, wrote. And uh, shortly after this, he was beheaded according to, to church history. And so for him to say, well, yeah, God is going to protect me from every evil shortly before his his imminent death, which he already knew was coming. He had said just a few verses before that uh, his end was pretty much imminent. So he wasn't looking for, for God to protect him in that, that kind of sense. He was looking for the future hope where he would be rescued. Uh, back in, in Romans, Paul said, uh, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? That was a, a, a cry that Paul had, realizing that in our body, we still struggle with sin, that the whole world, in fact, all of nature is groaning and crying out for redemption, realizing that we are in a fallen world and in a broken place, and sin has real consequences. And now we see Paul looking to, to God, not just for uh, his, his temporal hope, but for his future eternal hope. Turn over a few pages and, and read with me in Second Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians 4, and we'll start in verse 16. And here Paul says, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. 
while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. It's, that's Paul's mindset, that these afflictions, these trials, these troubles that he's going through, they're just temporary light afflictions. And he says, let's not look and, and focus on those temporary things. Let's instead look and focus on the eternal things. And Paul is being drawn to this conclusion because of his affliction. Remember, it was his affliction that led him to this, this point of despair, to this point of realizing that he was at his own end and looking to God, to the God who raises people from the dead. And perhaps you've experienced that in your own life where you've seen how God has used affliction to draw you closer to himself, where you encounter these, these troubles or these trials and God has drawing you to himself so that you can lean on him, so that you can depend on him. This is something that God doesn't just do in our initial coming to him in salvation, though he certainly does that. But even as we are being sanctified and becoming more and more like him, he is using these, these trials and these afflictions within our lives to help us to realize our dependency upon him, how we are uh, powerless within ourselves. And we see this in, in Paul's life later on in, in chapter 12 when he has this thorn in the flesh and he's praying that God would take it away. And God says, no, my, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is enough. This affliction causes Paul to, to turn to Christ and to rest on his grace, which is sufficient enough. Uh, Job said, shall we not indeed, or shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? Uh, that's not something we should do, right? We should realize that, that every good and perfect gift comes from, from God, from the Father above. And uh, the, the author of Lamentations, Jeremiah, he certainly realized this. So let's look at, at Jeremiah 3 together. Jeremiah 3, starting in verse 19. And, or Lamentations, rather. Lamentations 3, 19 through 24, where Jeremiah writes. Do we have that, Dusty? We don't have that. I didn't put that in the computer. All right, uh, Lamentations 3. I will turn there old school style. Lamentations 3.19. Again, Jeremiah there says, Remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. You hear the, the despair, the anguish in his heart, this affliction, wormwood and, and bitterness. And then 21 says, This I recall in my mind thinking and, and dwelling on this, this bitterness and his hardship. And his response is, therefore, I have hope. Because he's thinking on his affliction, on this hardship, he says, therefore, because of this, I have hope. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. And we see that affliction can draw us closer to God. It can help us to realize our, our dependence upon God and how he has given everything to us and how we need to, to thank him for, for everything. Uh, one of my, my favorite parts of the, the book, The Hiding Place, uh, talking about Corey Ten Boom and how she's in, in Ravenbrook in that uh, prison, right? Uh, is when she's talking to her, her sister, Betsy, and she reminds her of, 1 Thessalonians 5.18 that says, give thanks to God in, in all circumstances. And Betsy says, we need to thank God for the fact that we are here, the fact that we're in this concentration camp. And she said, now, now Corey, 
thank God for the fleas that he's given us in this concentration camp. And, and Corey had a hard time with that, but she did thank God for, for the fleas. And it come, come to find out later that uh, because of those fleas that were in their little section in that concentration camp, the, uh, the guards wouldn't go into that section. And that allowed them to have and, and host Bible studies where they were able to sit there and read uh, being bitten and uh, just pestered by these fleas that the guards didn't even want to put up with. And Corey Tamboom was there thanking God for the fleas. She didn't understand why, but um, she, she was able to see how that affliction worked out to, to her good and to her benefit. Uh, we see that at, in Acts, Paul does this beautifully. In Acts 14, we see that, uh, that Paul is stoned and he's supposed to be dead. And the very next day he gets up and he goes out to a different city and starts preaching the gospel. In, in Acts chapter 16, he gets locked up and he's in prison. He and Silas are there together and they're, they're singing praises and singing hymns to God right after being beaten and, and locked up. He realized that this affliction was something that should draw him closer to the Lord. However, it's not something that is unique to Paul. We see this in uh, all different places. We see this at the beginning of James epistle where he says, count it all joy, my brother, when you encounter various trials of, of many kinds. These trials should cause us to, to rejoice, to count it all joy. Or this passage in 1 Peter chapter 1, and Peter says, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So rejoice in these various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul, going through this, this great major affliction, this unnamed affliction in Asia, is drawn to, to praise and worship. He is drawn to realize the end of himself and to look to the God who raises people from the dead because of these hard times, these hardships and, and troubles that he was going through in Asia. And now Paul is writing back to the Corinthians, wanting them to understand and to experience the, the same thing, to see that these trials and afflictions should lead us to prayer, to calling out to God. And this prayer should result in a, a recognition of the fact that he is working, which should result in, in thanksgiving and, and giving gratitude to God for the fact that he has put us where we are, which will ultimately end in, in God himself being glorified. That is Paul's desire in saying, we share in our afflictions, we share in our comfort so that ultimately God may be glorified. We see that uh, Paul does that throughout this, this letter. Again, going back up to, to verse 7, we kind of skipped over verse 7 a little bit. But in verse 7, he says that our hope is for you, our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our suffering, so also you are sharers of our comfort. Paul's saying this is something we're doing together. I'm not just out there suffering by myself, but we share in the suffering, we share in the comfort. And then down here in verse 11, it says, you also joining in helping us through our prayers so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. And so looking at these verses, we can see that sharing our burdens and sharing our afflictions, sharing our troubles, our sufferings is not only permitted, but it's encouraged. It's something that we should be doing to share these things with, with one another. Are, are you hearing me, men? Because I know that we, 
we tend to struggle with this, right? To share the burdens. And in one respect, uh, it is good for the, the men, especially the husbands, to, to carry the burden. It's difficult to, to try to strike a balance because we are supposed to, to carry this burden. We're called to protect and to guard and to uh, bear the burden in our, our families, in our, our church, in our community. And Paul certainly exemplifies that in, in other places. But here we see this uh, mindset that while he is bearing this burden, he's not doing it alone. He's not just quietly toughing it, toughing it out. He's not internalizing it. Uh, he's not doing this in, in isolation. But he makes his needs known to, to others, to his community of, of believers. He communicates his fear and his concerns, his shortcomings. And in doing so, he is elevating God's role in this affliction, God's role in this situation. And again, men, husbands, God has given us a, a helpmate, right, to, to help carry those burdens, to, to lean on. And while we don't want to um, abdicate our responsibility, we need to use wisdom and, and be discerning so as not to uh, weigh our wives down with burdens that are unnecessary. We also don't want to neglect the the wisdom that our wives have to offer, the the insight and the comfort that God has provided to you through your wife. But here, Paul isn't leaning on his wife, right? Um, Paul is rather leaning on the church, on his Christian brothers, and he's writing to them saying, "We need to share in this suffering so that you can partake in this comfort." Uh, Galatians 6, Paul says that we need to bear one another's burdens. And in so doing, we're going to fulfill the law of Christ. That we need to rejoice with one another. And we need to weep when uh, each other is weeping. We need to be of the same mind towards one another. Realizing like we learned back in 1 Corinthians 12, that if one member of the body suffers, we all suffer together. It has an effect not just on ourselves, but on the church as a whole. And so Paul is leaning on the church as a whole. And he's calling them to pray alongside of him, to join him in prayer. Again, in, in verse 11, he says, also joining and helping us through your prayers. And so Paul, who already acknowledged the fact that he is in this situation because God has put him in this situation. He's going through these afflictions so that he would realize that he is at the end of himself and that he needs God's help. Paul, who realizes that God does all things according to the counsel of his will, that he knows all things that we need before we come to him and ask him, uh, Matthew 6, 8, that this God who doesn't need anything from us, he still desires to hear from us. And um, I just want to, to look at two reasons why it is that we ought to pray, despite the fact that God already knows. Because Paul was fully aware of that, and yet he says, Join me in this prayer. Join me in uh, this suffering. And so two reasons that we ought to pray. Uh, one is to acknowledge our, our inability and our dependence upon him. And in coming to God in prayer, we realize that we are at that same place that God was, where we have no strength. We're beyond our strength. Where, uh, as he says in verse 9, we have this sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves. If we neglect to pray, essentially what we're saying is that we don't need God, that we trust in ourselves, that our strength is sufficient. We need to come to this point where we realize that we need Him 
And if we hope to gain true comfort, it's not enough, enough for us just to acknowledge our inability, but we must acknowledge God's ability. Not just to, to realize, okay, I'm, I'm weak and I'm broken, but to realize that God is, is good enough. He is sufficient. We must recognize his sufficiency in addition to our insufficiency. And if we merely just stop at recognizing our, our inability, we're going to be drawn to this place of despair, to this place of despondency. And that's not what God would have for us. The, the prescription for the Christian is that we would be found in him complete, that we wouldn't have any need. We'd be found in him complete, not having a, a righteousness of our own, which is derived from the law, but a righteousness that is by faith, uh, by, by grace alone through him. We see that uh, Paul had this, this experience where he was brought to an end of himself and his eyes were, were drawn to Christ, to, to God who raises the dead. And he was not just broken down, but he was built back up again. Uh, John MacArthur had this quote from him. He says, In prayer, human impotence casts itself at the feet of divine omnipotence. When God's people intercede for each other, his power and sovereign purposes are realized. Thus, the purpose of prayer is not to manipulate God, but to exalt his power and to submit to his will. So we need to, to come to God in prayer. First of all, to, to recognize our inability and our dependence upon him. And then secondly, to cultivate a thankfulness to God. Again, when we have these afflictions, these trials, it should drive us to prayer. And this prayer should drive us to a, an understanding, a realization of who God is, which should drive us to thanksgiving and gratitude so that ultimately God may be glorified. That is the, the purpose of prayer. That is what Paul is wanting his uh, fellow brethren, his believers, these believers in Corinth to to see and to partake in with him so they could see how God rescued him from the suffering and how God provided comfort to him so that they themselves might be comforted when they face other trials, other afflictions in their own life. And lastly, I want to, to close by just realizing that Paul, he was out there doing some pretty gnarly things, right? Uh, again, he was facing some, some wild beasts at Ephesus. Um, he was being beaten, going through all these different shipwrecks and, and being stoned, being imprisoned. He was going through some stuff. He was out there on the mission field away from uh, these, these fellow beloved believers back at Corinth. And Paul being out there on the mission field, he was asking them to, to join him in prayer because not just for the, the effect that it would have on, on the Corinthians for praying, but because that prayer was actually effective. He says, join me join in helping us through your prayers. He says it's actually helpful. It is beneficial when you join us and you pray for us. Paul calling on the, the people back at, at Corinth to, to pray for him should cause us to, to likewise remember our missionaries that are out on the field, the people that are helping us to fulfill the great commission that God has given to us. That's not just a great commission for somebody who's out on the field. That's a great commission that he's given to each one of us to preach and to proclaim the gospel to all nations, not just here at home, but uh, out and abroad and even to the uttermost parts of the earth. That is a mission that he has given to us. And we have been enabled to fulfill that mission because of the missionaries that, that we support here. And we need to remember to, to uphold them in prayer, realizing they're facing afflictions and trials and troubles that, 
that we don't even know about. And, and shame on us for not knowing those things. We should be knowing who our missionaries are. Hopefully you guys know that. If not, you can find it on our app. We have a, a page on there that goes through our missionaries and just gives a short bio for who they are. But even if we know who they are, I think we could do a lot better job of, of actually knowing what it is that they're going through and even perhaps communicating with our missionaries. But certainly we should be praying for our missionaries and the things that they're going through, the, the afflictions that uh, they are facing on a, a daily basis. We need to remember that God uses afflictions in our lives for his good, for his glory, that we are united to one another and uh, we are, are struggling through this, this life, right? This life of despair together. And we need to lean on and, and rest on and rely upon our God who offers comfort to those. We need to share in each other's affliction, share in each other's comfort. And again, I want to particularly encourage us to be praying for our missionaries as they're going through uh, unique afflictions and trials. Let's do that now together. God, we do thank you for, for our missionaries. We thank you for the fact that you have drawn them to yourself, that you have called them into service, that you have given them a, a burden for uh, a work that, um, that we have not undertaken ourselves to, to go out into a, a place that is not our home, to, to share with people in, in different hurting capacities. God, I pray for the, the Pregnancy Resource Center and the, the difficult things that they're going through, all the women and uh, the, the men even they're, they're dealing with and encountering. I pray for, uh, the, pray for the many babies that they, they get to see and they get to impact. God, I pray that you would give them extra grace to do the work that you've called them to. And God, I thank you for, for Key Radio and for their ministry, for reaching out across the, the airwaves in Utah County. I pray that you would use that, that they would be fruitful, that they would be encouraged, uh, that they would be able to bless not only unbelievers with the, the, the truth of uh, a gospel that is fresh to them, but even the believers, that they would be lifted up and encouraged by that ministry. God, I thank you for, for the Whitworth family and all the, the recent struggles they've gone through and pray that you would guide them and direct them in what you have next for them and that we would be able to, to be a part of that. We would remember them in prayer, that we would not forget uh, the, the struggles that they're going through and that we would be uh, united with them. And God, I pray for, uh, for Frank and Roberta, for their ministry up at, at Cornerstone, for the rest of the missionaries with BMW. God, help us to... Uh, be, be on top of what you're doing through them and through that organization. Thank you for the, uh, the way that they've blessed our church and the history of our church. God, I pray for Corey and Bethany and that they would have uh, a fruitful ministry in, in Mexico. I pray for uh, the, the Basslers in, in Ecuador that you would uh, deliver them from, from any afflictions that they are, are going through right now and that you would help them to uh, get back to, to ministry as normal in Ecuador. And God, I pray for any here at Orchard Hills Bible Church that you might raise up for yourself to, to go out as a, a missionary in uh, some other place that you'd be working on their heart and those who you have called to, to different trials and troubles and afflictions, God. I pray that you would uh, give them the, the courage and the boldness to undertake uh, such, a, such an ordeal, realizing that you are the the God of all hope. You are the God of all comfort. You are the one who raises people from the dead. 
God, I thank you that we can pray to you, that you've given us that access to you, that we have a a mediator in Christ, that we have the the Holy Spirit groaning for us when when we don't know how how to pray. God, I thank you for this church, for your people, for your word, and pray that we would live a life that is worthy of the calling we've received. And pray these things in your name. Amen.